Let's read God's Word together. I'm going to begin by reading from the book of Isaiah, Isaiah 64, verses 1 to 9. Let us hear the Word of God. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains would tremble before you, as when fire sets twigs ablaze and causes water to boil. Come down to make your name known to your enemies and cause the nations to quake before you. For when you did awesome things that we did not expect, you came down, and the mountains trembled before you. Since ancient times, no one has heard, no ear has perceived, no eye has seen any God beside you who acts on behalf of those who wait for him. You come to the help of those who gladly do right, who remember your ways. But when we continued to sin against them, you were angry. How then can we be saved? All of us have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. We are shrivel up like a leaf, and like the wind, our sins sweep us away. No one calls on your name or strives to lay hold of you, for you have hidden your face from us and have given us over to our sins. Yet you, Lord, are our Father. We are the clay. You are the potter. We are all the work of your hand. Do not be angry beyond measure, Lord, do not remember our sins forever. Oh, look on us, we pray, for we are all your people. And then words from the Gospel of Mark. But in those days following that distress, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. At that time, people will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory, and he will send his angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of the heavens. Amen. Let's pray. Father, as we come to your word on this Advent Sunday, we pray that in this time, in these places, we would find you. O oh Lord, do not be distant from us, but draw close to us as we contemplate your word together. Amen. It's that time of year where there's that debate, isn't it, about Christmas. Do trees go up now, or do they go up next week, or the week after, or four weeks ago, depending on your house and your arrangement? Just when do you put your Slade album out and all the rest of it. And how do you do all of that <laughs> today in 20, blooming 20, with all that that means? But do you remember what it was like in the run-up to Christmas when you were five or six? Do you remember what it was like? I do. Do you remember longing for Christmas? Was that just me? 
And when I say longing, I don't mean looking forward to it. I mean actually physically, painfully longing. Anyone nodding? I grew up in the 1970s and, well, still growing up, but that's another story. Um, but at that time, I, you got stuff at birthday and you got stuff at Christmas, and that was about it. There's a few folk nodding to that. That was what you looked forward to. And so, for me, after my birthday in August, you just counted the weeks till the big one, till Christmas came. There were a whole lot of months where you, you thought about what you'd ask for, what you'd list, what you'd want. You got the, the catalogs when these things weren't online, and you looked at all the toys and the games, and you thought what you wanted, and you chose again, and you, you listed, and you longed, and you overhoped, over and all the rest of it, and you waited, and you counted the days. And the advent calendar wasn't just a pretty thing you put on the wall so you could get some chocolate every day. It was actually a thing that you were out there saying, is it still 13 days? And on it went and on it went. I can remember hating Christmas Eve because it was so close. It was painful. I remember dreading when we went back from the church service because you went to bed and you knew you were going to have an awful night because you didn't sleep. Maybe that was just me. Excitable. The waiting the longing, the yearning, till it had you in the guts for Christmas. Now, it's changed days because my children are the opposite. Um, we used to have to wake them on Christmas morning. None of this up at four in the morning because that's what I remember doing. You know, you, you, you woke up and it was only two o'clock and then it was three o'clock and then it was, I'm not allowed to go downstairs till six. You know, all that stuff, the physical yearning and the waiting. And that is, I suppose, not a bad thing because that is what Advent is all about, the yearning and the waiting. And perhaps this year with our COVID Christmas, that's a bit of a mixed bag as we think about waiting for Christmas because we're not very sure what that's like. We're not very sure what we can do. We've got all sorts of frustrations. But maybe that allows us to recapture something else. The Advent was never about waiting for that one day where we did a family festival and you catered for 25 or whatever you usually do at Christmas. I was reading some stuff that said that many, many homemakers are relieved that they're not catering for 25 this year. There's a mixed bag to that. But actually, Advent was about something else. It was about recalling the yearning, the waiting the longing of God's people. In the early chapters of the New Testament, we get that sense with Zechariah, with Joseph, with Mary of that yearning. People living under occupation, oppression, Herods and Caesars, feeling the injustice, wanting it to come to an end, longing for the day when God would send his Messiah. And that same sense of the church down through the ages of longing for the day that Christ would return, longing for the day that there would be justice in the world, longing that everything would be put right. In our comfortable day, perhaps we don't feel it the same way, but for generations of persecuted Christians, of Christians living in places of, of all sorts of evil, of Christians oppressed by the Roman Empire, those words that the end of Revelation ends with, come Lord Jesus into this, is that sense of yearning, of waiting, 
Friends, we have to learn to yearn. Because it's only when you yearn that you will pray. Prayer isn't a technique or a form of words. It is to learn to yearn. It is to look at the world as it is and yearn that it would be different. To look at the circumstances that you're going into and yearn that God would do something and would change it. That's what drives us to prayer. To look at the world and not just imagine something better, but want it with all of our hearts and souls and minds. Isaiah 64 verse 1. And if we don't remember anything else, just remember this first verse. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. Can you hear the yearning and the longing in that? The Bible background here we could have a look at later if you want, but it's the time of Isaiah where things are not all right. But actually, Isaiah's circumstances are not that important as we read this, because there is a sense that what Isaiah writes here is applicable to all times and all places in this broken world. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. It is simply a prayer that wants God. Sometimes you struggle to find the words when you pray, don't you? Let me give you a word. Oh. Oh. That first word, oh. It's a great prayer. It's just a groan. It doesn't need to be eloquent. It comes from the heart. Isaiah isn't doing theology or difficult stuff or daydreaming or anything else. He's just praying. Oh, is a cry of pain, isn't it? It might be a cry of despair. It's certainly a cry that things are not right. The world is not a good place. There's an awful lot about suffering and injustice that is held in that oh. Certainly in these verses. But it's more than that. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down comes from a conviction that there is a solution. There is a joy. There is a hope. And that hope is God. Why wouldn't he do something? And so I yearn. I long. I pray. There's a frustration that God hasn't done what I think he should do. And therefore, the waiting and the longing begin again in prayer. Is that our prayer? Can you manage an O? Not of despair, but of yearning. Prayer is actually fairly simple and very difficult at the same time. It's, it's very interesting. I always take great comfort from the fact that the only time that the disciples ever asked Jesus to teach them anything, they said, Lord, teach us to pray. They struggled with it, just like we do. And he taught them the Lord's Prayer. And, you know, the trouble with the Lord's Prayer a, a little bit is that theologians and ministers and preachers have spent ages taking it all apart and making 19 sermons out of it, haven't they? And I sometimes think it's an awful lot simpler than that. Jesus just said, talk to your dad. Hallowed be your name. May your kingdom come on the earth as it is in heaven. It's a quite a simple prayer. It's a yearning prayer. May your kingdom come. May your righteousness come. May your holiness come. May your fixing of all this come. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. 
also a very radical prayer. For when we pray your kingdom come, what we actually pray is these kingdoms be gone with their injustice and their pain and their suffering and their, their nuttiness. May they be gone. What I want is you. What I want is your justice. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. Do you long for that? Do you long for justice on earth? Do you long for poverty to end? Do you long that we don't need to collect for women's aid because there is justice and freedom and healing? Do you long for a planet to be renewed, not polluted? Do you long for people who are in abusive relationships or despair or addiction to be set free? Do you long for politics to be honest? Do you long for your town, for your city, for your nation, for your world to be different? Oh. But there's something else here, isn't there? Because when we pray, oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, we're also being honest about another heart, which is that sometimes God seems like he's distant. That we have to yell. We know that he's loving and compassionate and powerful. We know that his presence brings healing and joy because we've experienced it in our own lives. Where have we found the greatest peace but when we've been in the presence of God and known his love? And yet it feels so often we want more, more. Isaiah recognized that. The interesting thing about the book of Isaiah is that it begins in chapter 6 in that famous scene where Isaiah is in the temple and he gets the vision of the Lord. And he says, woe is me, I'm a man of unclean lips as he sees the glory of the Lord and the angel brings the whole coal. You, you, you might remember the story and touches his lips and he says, here am I, send me that sense of the closeness of God. But here, in this vision, it's years later. And Isaiah has a vision, or, or maybe even a reality, depending on the time scale, of the temple torn down, of all that he remembered of God's presence is somehow not there. That's why he's yelling, oh, that thou would tear the heavens apart and come down. Break into my world, because that's where the hope comes from. Verse 4, though, is interesting. He prays, since ancient times, no one has heard, no ear has perceived, no eye has seen any God beside you who acts on behalf of those who wait for him. No other God except you. So here's the thing. Actually, as you read the Old Testament, you find out the Israelites had tried lots of other gods at different times, fertility gods and this God and that God and Baals and Canaanite gods and all the rest of it. But Isaiah says, no, none of it worked. They couldn't satisfy. No God, but you will do. That's why I'm calling on you to come down into the situation. I suppose we could bear that out as well. How many things have come along and said, this is the solution. This will make the world bet well again. Just adopt my political platform. Just take on my manifesto of left or right or wherever it is. If only we do this, the world will be a better place or there's science with all the things that it promises us. If only we do this, we will advance and be more progressive. Of course, all we've done is build bigger bombs. Agendas of every single type. But Isaiah says, no, only you will do. 
Only you will bring what we need. It's interesting that um, political activism, which is a good thing, and prayer actually have something in common. Because both of them look at the world and say, I'm not satisfied with this. I dream, I imagine, and I hope for a different type of world. The difference is that prayer is more realistic because it looks at the whole of human history and says, nothing works except you, Lord. Not really. Not in the end. But there's more than that because prayer also recognizes our brokenness. Verse 5 of this chapter says, you come to the help of those who gladly do right, but we continue to sin. You know, if we all did the right thing, we could make the world a different place. If we could be generous in our hearts, if we could be loving, if we could be, if we could be kind to one another, then yeah, the world could change. But here is the reality. We're not like that. Brilliant imagery that's used here by Isaiah. We become unclean. Our righteous acts are like a polluted garment, and all of us wither like a, a, a leaf and carry our iniquities away. It, it's actually very stark because it says that the best that we do, and we try to do the right thing, is just like a filthy rag, and it just doesn't work. And the words that's used here, us, and actually, a filthy rag doesn't, we sort of think of that as a sort of cloth that's been used on a kitchen surface and it's dirty. That's not actually what Isaiah is using here. When he says a filthy garment, he's really saying a soiled piece of underwear. It's that bad. When you look at it compared to God's holiness, everything that we do, no matter what it is, it's soiled, it stinks. And then he goes on, it, it's like a shriveled, a shriveled leaf. I, 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 was, I was out doing what you do this time of year. I was sweeping leaves in, in the manse. Well, you probably did that three months ago, but I'm just getting around to it now. But I was thinking as I, as I did that, we've been in, in the manse now since late February and how we've actually seen the seasons. We've seen the trees budding and we've seen them coming into fullness. And then we've watched the autumn leaves fall off and it's, it's great. And now all the leaves that we saw when we came are all lying on the ground. And I began to, 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 to sweep them together. And it's going to go round in a circle again, isn't it? Except the leaves aren't. I can't take them and glue them back on the tree and let it start again. They're useless. They're pointless. And that's what Isaiah says. You know, we do our best, but it just doesn't work because of our sinfulness. And so we need something else. It's not just that the world has to be changed. That's what the politicians will tell you. Adopt the, the platform, change this, do that, and things will be different. But actually the Christian knows that the change needs to be more than that. The change that we yearn for, that we long for, that we want, is a change of us. And only when there's a change of our hearts can actually the whole of society be transformed. And so this passage ends by... Isaiah saying, you are our father. This has got to do with our relationship with you. We are the clay and you are the potter. If we are to be changed and molded, it's going to take your power to come, the power that created us in the first place to reshape us 
That takes us back to the Philippians that we've been reading where it talked about God coming not just to save us in Jesus Christ, but to change us and transform us into the likeness of His Son, that justice and peace might start in us and travel out into this world around us, that we can be in Christ the change that we yearn for, that we reshape. But let's be very clear, and this is important, that the gospel message isn't just that we would be forgiven and we would know that we are going to heaven. The gospel message isn't just that we will be better people, but it's much more than that. If we were to read on in Isaiah 64 and 65, as Isaiah begins to yearn for things to be different, he begins to have this vision of what God will do when he makes all things new. These wonderful words from Isaiah 65, see I will create a new heaven and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind, but be glad and rejoice forever in what I will create, for I will create Jerusalem to be a delight and its people to be a joy. God creating a new heaven and a new earth. And this is where the Advent hope blends into the Christmas promise. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. He did. That's the good news. And I love that expression, rend the heavens and come down, because it, 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 it's something else. You can imagine that from below of Isaiah praying that you would tear the heavens and come down. But then you can imagine something else, a father trying to reach his child that is straying, rending even the heavens themselves in his love to get to his children. Jesus, after he'd come and all the yearning, began his ministry, and he went to be baptized, and we're told he looked up, and he saw the heavens rend, and the Spirit descending as a dove. And the Father looking at the child and saying, this is my child, my beloved, with whom I am well pleased. And so the ministry of hope began in Christ God had rent the heavens and come down. The word became flesh, the light shining in the darkness. And because of that, we know. So for us as Christians, we look back to what God has done in the incarnation, but we also know that is the reality now that God has rent the heavens and come down. And we know it's the hope for the future. Shortly, we'll be singing or hearing sung, Joy to the World. And I love that song. We think of it as a Christmas song, but actually it's an Advent song. It's about the coming of Christ. Joy to the world, the Lord is come. Have you ever thought about that? It's bad English, isn't it? Is come. The tense is wrong. Now, I'm not much of a, a grammar scholar, so I, I'll admit the next bit I googled. Isaac Watts wrote that in 1719. And at the time, that was perhaps a common way of speaking, and the book tells me it's an accusative, intransitive use of the verb. Any English teachers? Is come. I suppose... It emphasizes this just simply. Has come says that happened. 
is come says it changes the now. The Lord is here. The heavens have been rent. The word is flesh. And that is, is being worked out now in our time. Even as we continue to yearn for him to come and make all things new, the Christ that has come to come in his fullness, the kingdom to come, the will to be done, the heavens finally to be rent. Christ has died, Christ has risen, is risen. Christ will come again. Let that vision of what God has promised make you, as you look at the world around you in all its brokenness, yearn even deeper.